All right, well, as we continue on, we are in this, this period of time shortly after the passing of the, the, the apostles of the New Testament. Of course, we spent quite a bit of time surveying Acts, which gives us that introductory period of the church's history and the ministry of the apostles and primarily focusing in the first half of that on Peter and his ministry principally in Jerusalem, but also the apostle Paul as he traveled out and took others with him and took the gospel really far and wide to what you would consider the ends of the earth and thinking of Christ's commission there in Acts chapter 1. And we move now, uh, we have moved now into this period of time shortly after this period of the, the church of the apostles, the, the, the church as it was founded and instituted by the, the apostles, the disciples of Christ and Paul uh, as called by Christ directly into this period of time where you see the development or the continued development, the continued strengthening, um, the connectedness of doctrine and understanding of the gospel as, as the truth has been passed on, as the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy, to, to faithful men who would then teach others. And so we have these, some of these examples. There's not a lot uh, of, um, of extant uh, data or literature written by some of these early church fathers, but, but there is some that gives us great um, insight and clarity into some key principles um, that I think we can draw from as we continue on in this, this study. Our, we've t- I've titled this overall um, study in church history upon this rock, and of course I'm taking that from um, Christ's words in Matthew chapter 16 where he's talking to the disciples and he's asking them, who do people say that I am? And, of course, this interchange, um, various answers are given, but it ultimately leads to him asking a more pointed or more direct question, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you have Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 16, um, citing the fact that this was not something that Peter understood of his own accord, but it was something that was... Um, given to him by the Spirit of God, by God himself, to, to give him that clarity and that understanding of who Christ really was. And then, then Jesus goes on to say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It's on that particular interchange and on that particular series of passages that a great amount of confusion and even controversy has emerged over time. And I would say that there are some seminal passages in Scripture that you can always go back to, invariably, regardless of what the circumstances might be historically, regardless of what people you might be looking at or, or, or studying or trying to get a sense of biographically or what may be, you know, the various movements, the various... Uh, strands of belief or doctrine or errant theology. There's a few seminal passages I think you can always go back to, and you can look at what we have from God Himself and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit revealed to us the insight to understand what's really going on. And I think that this is one of them. Of course, I think Genesis 3 is another great passage to always refer back to if you want to know what's kind of going on with people um, as, as they are dealing with the issue of sin and temptation and being drawn away by 
the allurements of the world and by falsehood and by taking truth and twisting it. You can always go back to some of these key passages. And this, I think, in, in Matthew chapter 16 is one of them. Why do you think I would say that, though? Particularly in light of, of a study of church history, why would, I, why would I point to this particular interchange in Matthew chapter 16 as a defining passage that gives us some, some, uh, you know, sort of a, some bearings or some moorings as to what, what happens with men uh, as it relates to the truth. Why Matthew 16 in this confession, confession of Peter? Anybody have a Roman Catholic background, by, way, by the way? Because um, that, that's a big part of it, obviously, but, but it's, it's more than just that, obviously. So, uh, you know, there's a play on words. His name was Simon, but Jesus called him Peter, mm-hmm. the stone. Right. Right. So, and but then the play on words upon this rock, mm-hmm. which is not a stone. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the Roman the church claims that you know uh, that Peter was the first pope. Right. Even though James was really the head of the church. Right. A little historical it was detail. In, it was right. Centered in Rome. It was centered in Jerusalem. Right. And well, actually. James was not the head of the church. He was probably the, the, the lead pastor, but Christ is the sure. head of the church. Sure. And, uh, and Christ says, I will establish my church. Mm-hmm. And the word church means called out ones. So what he's saying is, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, right? My spirit did, and... I will establish my called out ones upon this truth, this bedrock foundation. Okay, so very good. So, so think about this for a second, okay? So what often happens, what has happened historically, and what often happens both individually and collectively amongst people who are either truly redeemed and are, are God's people or are affiliated in some way, maybe confessing or professing some 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 version of Christianity, what, what is characteristic is this tendency to move away from what is revealed truth from Christ and the very essence of the gospel and to begin to embrace something that is more man-centric, something that is more tangible, that we can hold on to physically, that we can look to physically. I mean, you have... You have the Israelites calling for a king, right? They, there's, this, there's this impulse, this, this ultimately sinful instinct on the part of, of us as fallen men and women to want to have structures and institutions and people and, and infrastructure in place that we can grab hold of, that we can point to, that gives us some sense of assurance or some sense of confidence or or something that we can just sort of mindlessly follow. We don't have to do the work ourselves of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, or being students of the Word and hiding God's Word in our heart, or whatever it might be. There's this, there's this move or this tendency toward human-oriented things, institutions, ways of understanding who God is. And that's precisely what Christ chastise the Pharisees about. Right. teach the commandments of men. You have heard it said, but I say to you. 
It was this entire ministry of, of reorienting everybody's thinking. You, you've built this edifice of man-centered, man-uplifting religion, and I'm telling you, that is not the truth. So you see this happening over and over again. So what, what you find is you find uh, people looking back through the annals of time, and they point to all these different points in church history, all the way back to the New Testament. They point back to Matthew chapter 16, and they say, there you have it. There is the basic anointing of Peter as the first vicar of Christ, and he's endued with this authority. I will give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of God. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. So there's this tendency to understand that whole passage, not the way Phil just explained it, with the emphasis on Christ, upon the revelation of who he is, and all that that encompasses what he accomplished on the cross, this really pushes us to think about a a comprehensive, biblical, Christ-centric worldview. When you look at the Gospels, you don't see Christ introduced to us as a Gandhi-like teacher who is willing to die for his convictions. He is introduced to us as the one who is in the beginning, who made all things. Through him, all things were made. Nothing was made that has been made, John says. He is God of very God. That's, that's, he, he, and so this, this comprehensive worldview, this total sweep of what we call history, is really about God and his work of creation, of the fall, of redemption, and of ultimate Restoration, consummation, glorification. That, that's, so to understand in the gospel or revealed truth from the perspective of, of something human, something confined to human history, to a human understanding or documentation or record of history, is to completely miss the great sweep of what this is all about. And so over and over again throughout history, you have this orientation or this tendency that takes place. And you'll have people who will point back to, for example, Matthew chapter 16, or even step further ahead into this, for example, this early church fathers period that we're talking about. And they'll, they'll identify these different writings and they'll pull things out from them to support this man-centric view of religion. This infrastructure, this this apostolic succession of of the Pope, all these different things, they'll point back. And what we talked about last week when we introduced Clement of Rome, one of the earliest writings after the New Testament that we have, Clement mentioned in the New Testament, an associate of Paul, knew Peter, uh, was the um, fourth pastor, lead pastor of the church at Rome. What we focused on last time for, you know, on purpose is his clear uh, writing and instruction and commitment to justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. In other words, this contrast between what's actually written by Clement and what is often pointed back to him as him being the fourth bishop of Rome, the fourth pope in the lineage of papal succession. Okay, 
So we're drawing out from these early church fathers in this period of time key uh, elements from their writing that sort of give us an indication of the strain and, and, and continuity of, of New Testament clarity and truth throughout history that gets routinely distorted and corrupted by men. So it's not that somehow there's big mistakes or there's big gaps that you just can't know what people thought or what people believed or there's lost periods of time where there was a, you know, confusion about the gospel. That's not the case. And the fact of the matter is, is that God is more than able to keep his word, to sustain his people, and to perpetuate his stated intent to build his church. And that's what he does, and that's what we see through these, these writings. Just to remind you, this patristic period that we're talking about, the patristic period is sort of a longer period of time. We're, we're focusing in on what is called the, the writings of the apostolic fathers, which is a much shorter period of time, right after the, the passing of, for example, John, the, the, the latest um, living apostle, the oldest apostle. But the patristic period is the broader sweep of history, and it's, it's dated different ways. It's usually AD 100 is kind of the consistent starting point. Some would have it go all the way through AD 450, um, and some would have it go all the way through AD 604, just the different seminal points in history that they might pick as in, encompassing the patristic period. But it's, it's divided typically into various sections. And the first section is called the Anti-Nicene Fathers or the Apostolic Fathers. This is the, the writings of those who were writing before the council at Nicaea, which took place in AD 325. Now, it's interesting to note, when you look at, there's a 10-volume there's a, a set uh, entitled the Anti-Nicene Fathers. It was originally printed in 1885. So it's, it's this multi-volume set of early, early church history. It basically has, it's a basically an, an edited version of all these writings, translated into English and, and edited into this multi-volume set. But I, I, I was struck by the introductory note to this, this multi-volume set because I feel like it really sort of captures some key elements that we can draw away from 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 these men in, in this period of time um, that, are, that I think are encouraging for us. So listen to what this, this introductory, um, these introductory comments are from this, this particular um, historical volume uh, covering this period of time. It says, We thus find ourselves conducted by this, godly, this goodly fellowship of witnesses from the times of the apostles to those of Tertullian, from the martyrs of the second persecution to those of the sixth. Now listen to this. Those were times of heroism, not of words. An age, not of writers, but of soldiers. Not of talkers, but of sufferers. Curiosity is baffled, but faith and love are fed by these scanty relics of primitive antiquity. In other words, we don't have a lot, but what we do have is worthy of note. He says, yet may we be well grateful for what we have. These writings come down to us as the earliest response of converted nations to the testimony of Jesus. They are primary evidences of the canon and the credibility of the New Testament. A very important point. When we start looking at the, the, the recognition of the New Testament canon, 
referring back to some of these early church writers, these disciples of the apostles, and their reference points to the letters of the Apostle Paul, for example, or Peter, to give us uh, a sense of uh, continuity, of recognition of the authority and inspiration of the New Testament, even before it was recognized as a, as a 27-book volume, if you will. Very important point from, from even from these early church fathers. Disappointment may be the first emotion of the student who comes down from the mount where he has dwelt in the tabernacles of evangelists and apostles. For these disciples are confessedly inferior to their masters. They speak with voices of infirm, infallible men, and not like the New Testament writers with the fiery tongues of the Holy Ghost. So there's just acknowledgement that this is not inspired writings. This is not on the same par as the New Testament, but nonetheless very helpful and inspiring to us. Yet the thoughtful and loving spirit soon learns their exceeding value. For who does not close the records of St. Luke with longing to get at least a glimpse of the further history of the progress of the gospel? What of the church when its founders were fallen asleep? Was the good shepherd always with his little flock according to his promise? Was the blessed comforter felt in his presence amid the fires of persecution? Was the spirit of truth really able to guide the faithful into all truth and to keep them in the truth? And what had become of the disciples who were first fruits of the apostolic ministry? St. Paul had said, The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. How was this injunction realized? St. Peter's touching words come to mind, I will endeavor that ye may be able, to, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Remember, this is written in 1885. Was this endeavor successfully carried out? To these natural and pious inquiries, the apostolic fathers, though we have a few specimens only of their fidelity, give an emphatic reply. And then this concluding paragraph. They are monuments of the power of the gospel. They were made out of such material as St. Paul describes when he says, such were some of you. But for Christ, they would have been worshipers of personified lust and hate and of every crime. They would have lived for bread and circus shows. Yet to the contemporaries of a juvenile, they taught the Decalogue and the Sermon on the Mount. Among such beasts in human form, they reared the sacred home. They created the Christian family. They gave new and holy meanings to the names of wife and mother. They imparted ideas unknown before the dignity of man as man. They infused an atmosphere of benevolence and love. They bestowed the elements of liberty chastened by law. They sanctified human society by proclaiming the universal brotherhood of redeemed man. As we read the Apostolic Fathers, we comprehend, in short, the meaning of Paul when he said prophetically, What men were slow to believe, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things which are. So, you see in this introduction this reference to the heroism of these early church fathers. You see in this introduction this reference to the fact that we have uh, references to New Testament letters that helped inform the recognition of the New Testament canon. You have this introduction giving us a sense of their, their inspired work, 
not inspired of the Holy Spirit, but work that inspires us toward deeds of love and grace and compassion and Christian charity. Now, when you think about this period of time, um, this, this is a continuation of the spread of the New Testament church. And it, it, we could raise this question all along the way. We could have raised this question, and we, and we kind of discussed it in part uh, along the way as we were looking at Acts and the, the uh, missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his companions. But I'll ask you this question. I, I have some, I have some uh, response I want to offer to you from another writer, but I want to get your feedback before we move on. What, what do you think, why do you think the church was able to grow so rapidly and so explosively in these early centuries of its history? Because, I mean, you think about it, you didn't have mass transit, you didn't have mass communication, travel was very difficult, um, there were perils abounding, uh, there was no shortage of, of variant worldviews and understanding of man's origins or man's purpose. Uh, the, the religious scene was multifaceted. It was cultic. It was pantheonistic. I mean, it was just, you can just imagine. And yet, you have this amazing spread of the gospel and this explosive and expansive, geographic expansive growth of the New Testament church. And wasn't it God's plan and the persecution of the Christians that kind of pushed it out to the rest of the world? That's, that's certainly part of it. Yeah, you could point to the, the providential work of, of God. Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, and the persecution. I mean, it, when, when Christians started fleeing, the disbursement. Yeah. Yeah, and also, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, it's all of God, right? Certainly. But what did he use? What were the means that he used? I think one of them was the, that in dovetails with the, the is the destruction of the temple and destruction, of, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, basically put an end to the real practice of Judaism. The uh, I had a friend when I grew up on Long Island. I had a lot of Jewish friends. I asked him one one time. I was reading through the Old Testament. How come? You don't practice all these animal sacrifices. (laughs) And he just said to me, you have to understand, without the temple, it's impossible to truly practice Judaism. And, you know, it makes sense to me. And now I understand, you know, Jesus prophesied that the temple would be gone. You know, they were incensed by that. Stephen said, you know, it's just a building. They stoned him for that. <clears throat> and God basically used the Romans to scrape it clean. And that, and today, the, the dome of the mosque, or the mosque of Dome of the Rock, you know, stands there basically like God's seal, mm-hmm. saying, you won't do this. Go find the real Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. I think just to add to that, I think persecution brings a purity to the church. Yep. And uh, when you think about the, uh, the authenticity of the believers, the genuineness of the testimony, because the church was not infiltrated by false believers so much, you contrast that with the darkness that was all around them. As they say, sometimes the darker the night, the brighter the light. So you have this this really kind of uh, 
intensified purity within the body of Christ that is standing in bold contrast to the confusion and corruption of the world all around us. Yep. So it's good. A couple other things I was thinking of. Was the, uh, I don't know how to phrase this correctly or not, but like the, the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. More of them active during that time. So validating the, the testimony of the, the apostles. Mm-hmm. The fact that most of the known world was under Roman rule made it uh, a little bit easier, I think, for there was some because it spread throughout that area as well. Yeah, lines of communication. It was certainly it, was, it certainly provided, um, literally and figuratively, avenues that weren't existent in prior epics, right? So that's for sure. Let me let me read this to you. I think you guys are hitting on several of these that are in this uh, this um, little excerpt from um, from Shelley's uh, Church History. Christianity, as we have seen, began as a tiny offshoot of Judaism. Three centuries later. It became the favored and eventually the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. Despite widespread and determined efforts to eliminate the new faith, it survived and grew. By the reign of Constantine in 312 to 337, the first Christian emperor, there were churches in every large town in the empire and in places as distant from each other as Britain, Carthage, and Persia. How did that happen? Why did the Christian faith spread in this extraordinary way? The devout Christian will want to stress the power of the gospel. By ordinary standards, nothing could have been less likely to succeed, but believers have always insisted that God was at work in this movement. He went with those early witnesses. There was a divine side to the expansion of the church, but God usually works through human hearts and hands, and there is some value in asking what human factors contributed to the spread of the gospel. Several prominent factors, however, appear to have contributed to the growth of Christianity. First, and rather obviously, early Christians were moved by a burning conviction. When you read these early church fathers, of course you see this in, obviously in, in the New Testament, but when you read these early church fathers, you see that. We, 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 can, we can see the passion and the zeal and the conviction that they had. The event had happened namely the resurrection. God had invaded time, and Christians were captivated by the creative power of that grand news. They knew that men had been redeemed, and they could not keep keep to themselves the tidings of salvation. That unshakable assurance in the face of every obstacle, including martyrdom itself, helps explain the growth of the church. Second, the Christian gospel met a widely felt need in the hearts of people. Ancient Stoicism, for example, taught that men achieve tranquility by the suppression of desire for everything that man cannot get and keep. Quote, before the external disorder of the world and bodily illness, retreat into yourself and find God there. That's a Stoic uh, statement. Thus the Stoic soul stood firm in the storms of life by practicing apathy, the discipline of not being attached to people or things. If a person was not emotionally attached to things... He could not be victimized and thus could live in tranquility. Stoics called for the virtue of courage in facing whatever was to come. While Christians were committed to the personal God revealed in Jesus, they could still admire some Stoic convictions once those convictions were refitted for Christian teaching. For example, Stoics called for facing suffering with courage, independence from the things of this world, and a trust in a greater providence. 
many people came to see that what the Stoics aimed for, the Holy Spirit produced in Christians. Third, the practical expression of Christian love. Now, this is really important, especially when you think about Jesus' words in John about the church and love. The practical expression of Christian love was probably among the most powerful causes of Christian success. Tertullian tells us the pagans remarked, see how these Christians love one another. That's a pagan statement about the Christians. The pagans' words were sincere. Christian love found expression in the care of the poor, of widows and orphans, in visits to brethren in prisons or in those condemned to a living death in the mines, and in acts of compassion during a famine, earthquake, or war. One expression of Christian love had a particularly far-reaching effect. The church often provided burial service for the poor brethren. Christians felt that to deprive a person of honorable burial was a terrible thing. Lactanius, the North African scholar, wrote, Quote, we will not allow the image of, creation, of the creation of God to be thrown out to the wild beast and the birds as, as their prey. It must be given back to the earth from which it was taken. In the second half of the second century, at least in Rome and Carthage, churches began to acquire burial grounds for their members. One of the oldest of these is south of Rome on the Appian Way at a place named Catacumbus. Thus, Christian compassion for bodies of de- the dead explains how Christians became associated with the catacombs the underground corridors used for cemeteries in and around Rome. The impact of this ministry of mercy upon pagans is revealed in the observation of one of Christianity's worst enemies. When when the enemies of Christ are expounding upon the virtues of Christians, that's significant. And this is what happens. The apostate emperor Julian In his day, Julian was finding it more difficult than he had expected to put new life into the traditional Roman religion. He wanted to set aside Christianity and bring back the ancient faith, but he saw clearly the drawing power of Christian love in practice. This is what he said. Atheism, which is the Christian faith from his vantage point, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, namely Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Powerful statement about the love demonstrated by the early Christians. And then finally, to Shane's point, persecution in many instances helped to publicize the Christian faith. Martyrdoms were often witnessed by thousands in the amphitheater, The term martyr originally meant witness, and that is precisely what many Christians were at the moment of death. The Roman public was hard and cruel, but it was not altogether without compassion. And there is no doubt that the attitude of the martyrs, and particularly of the young women who suffered along with the men, made a deep impression. In instance after instance, what we find is cool courage in the face of torment courtesy toward enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering as the way appointed by the Lord to lead to His heavenly kingdom. There are a number of cases of conversion of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of Christians. For these and other reasons, the Christian churches multiplied until Rome could neither ignore nor suppress the faith. It finally had to come to terms with it. And so that last point, that I want to 
close our time by drawing our attention to a early church uh, writing, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Let me talk about Polycarp for just a minute, because this 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 example, this testimony, this witness of early Christian persecution as a stimulant to the expansion of the church, of the actual conversion of unbelievers, is validated or affirmed by uh, the, pers- the, uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp of, Par- Polycarp of Smyrna, he lived around AD 69 to around AD 155, so uh, the time just after the Apostle Paul and Peter's uh, martyrdom in Rome uh, and, and on into the mid part of the second century. He was a disciple of John. Uh, he was a friend of Ignatius. He was a companion of Papias. We'll talk about these in another time. He was actually the teacher of Irenaeus. Uh, we have one extant letter, one, one remaining letter from Polycarp. It was a letter to the Philippians, and I'm not going to read from it today, but I would encourage you to look it up. It's loaded with references to uh, New Testament writings from Peter, from the Apostle Paul. He explicitly mentions them in his letter. Um, it's, it's basically just almost like a running commentary of principles of Christian virtue and Christian conduct taken from uh, the New Testament, um, what, what at the time had not been assembled as the New Testament, but nonetheless was recognized already as inspired scripture. But details about his death are uh, about Polycarp's death are recounted in this other document that we have called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's, this is considered to be one of the earliest genuine accounts of Christian martyrdom, obviously outside what we have in the New Testament. So let me read to you some excerpts from this, this uh, document. This is, uh, some of this uh, you, you know, may be um, uh, embellished, if you will. It's not, uh, it's, it's not um, it, the, 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 uh, the authenticity of the document is not in question, but some of the detail may not be as, as crystal uh, clear or verified. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a representation of the, the history and the oral uh, passing down of this account, and believers took great inspiration from this account uh, of his of his quote unquote trial and his and his martyrdom. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, "Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp." No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And he was, as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect for your old age and other similar things according to their custom. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists. That's what the proconsul was encouraging him to do. Polycarp was over 80 years old at this time. So there was an element of, I guess, some level of compassion for his age, if you will. Uh, the proconsul was saying, listen, have respect for your old age. Don't do this at such an old age. All you have to do, basically, as he's saying, is, is, is to swear by the fortune of Caesar and repent and say away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance 
on all the multitude of the wicked heathen, then in the stadium, and waving his hand towards them, while, they, while with groans, he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. A little turn of, uh, turn of emphasis there for him. Then the proconsul, urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Further on, then the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beast if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what thou wilt. So this is an indication of that courage that we're talking about, that, 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 that introductory comment from that, that history uh, volume was referring to. While he spoke these things and many others similar, he was filled with confidence and joy and his countenance was full of grace. But on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium thrice, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation, having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jews who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, This is the teacher of Asia, Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods, he who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burnt alive. After he had been tied to the stake... Polycarp prayed, O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and of every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before thee, I give thee thanks, that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of thy Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption by the Holy Ghost. Now you have here, just in this prayer, his understanding of a Trinitarian view of God. You have reference to God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, it's not articulated in some type of Trinitarian doctrinal statement, but there are those, and what we're going to find along the way as we move forward, these denials of various key doctrines, one of them being the triune nature of God, where you have a denial, for example, of the deity of Christ. You have a denial of the actual humanity of Christ. Uh, you have various, various uh, attacks or assaults on the triune nature of God. And here you have Polycarp in his prayer affirming that in this early, this early uh, document, this early uh, reference from history. Among whom I may be accepted, he goes on, this day before thee is a choice and acceptable sacrifice According as thou, the ever-truthful God, has foreordained, hast revealed beforehand to me, and now hast fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise thee for all things, I bless thee, I glorify thee, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. This then is the account of the blessed Polycarp, who, 
being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, reckoning those also of Philadelphia, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men, insomuch that he is everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. So there you see the testimony or the witness that persecution and martyrdom brought in the spread of the gospel. It says he, he is uh, everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr, whose martyrdom all desired to imitate, as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ. For having through patience overcome the unjust governor, and thus acquired the crown of immortality, he now with the apostles and all the righteous in heaven rejoicingly glorifies God, even the Father, and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the governor of our bodies, and the shepherd of the universal church throughout the world. Now you have here this amazing testimony of the martyrdom of one of these early, early, early church fathers, these early writers. Polycarp was the, the pastor of the church at Smyrna, one of the churches, one of the seven churches that John is writing to. You can see the association. He was a disciple of John, and you see this, this close association. And he's being heralded as a witness, and his martyrdom is a witness to even the heathen of his time. So you see, in, even in these early writings, you see this, this connection of, or this continuity of fundamental doctrines. As we looked at Clement, Clement of Rome and we saw his statements about the, the relationship of the root of righteousness versus the fruit of righteousness, the root of righteousness, which is justification by faith, versus the fruit of righteousness, which is the outworking of that faith in ever-growing sanctification. This is in total contrast to the Roman Catholic doctrine of progressive justification. The Roman Catholic doctrine is not one of progressive sanctification as much as progressive justification, and one can lose their justification. It's not something that's, that's a, a, a judicial declaration where we actually obtain the full righteousness of Christ in total um, through faith and by God's grace but it's something that can be lost. And you see these references going back to the the very beginning of those who were writing and serving and ministering and taking the truths of the gospel and the, the, the mission of this new church and the ministry of the gospel of truth and its redemptive connection to the Old Testament. All this was being taken forward by these faithful men, even to the point where it would cost them their lives such as the case with Polycarp. And, of course, there, there are others. I didn't mention this last time, but Clement was also martyred. He was thrown, thrown overboard on a ship and, and drowned um, and, and martyred for his faith. You have, um, uh, who was the other guy that was, um, Ignatius. Ignatius, we'll talk about him too, but he, was, he wrote his letters on his way to being martyred. The letters that we have from Ignatius, he was writing to them, to these churches and, and various people on the way to being executed. So all, this, all these testimonies uh, in the early church of those who were remaining faithful, not only faithful in their convictions to not recant under severest of pressure and threat of death, but also faithful to the truth of the gospel and in the continuity of gospel doctrine it was, as it was passed on and as it was passed on to faithful men who would also teach others, as Paul told Timothy. That's all I have. Final thoughts, comments? Yes? Oh, you know, one other thing I was thinking about, your, your question, uh, 
you know, what caused the the, uh, the church to explode as it did. And I think uh, some of it, you can look to Second uh, Peter chapter three, where Peter says, you know, the, um, you know, they, uh, let's see, uh, they will say, where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So there was a recency of the resurrection of Christ and the message that he's coming again to judge the world, you know, and I think a lot of people were moved by that, and that, and the resurrection was such a historical fact that, you know, it put, as it were, the fear of God in them to repent because of the coming judgment. But I think as time has gone on, and you look now, you know, people couldn't care less. You know, of course, it's all, you know, what the Holy Spirit gives them. But I think there's. Back then, there was an immediacy that, that people thought they needed to repent right away. Yeah. Well, I think that it also, that, that's, to me, that's a point of, of caution and reminder and conviction for us um, that um, the, 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 the Word of God and the power of His truth, as we study it, reflect on it, meditate on it, and, and as the Spirit of God does the work of the heart within us, we bring, we bring to remembrance what God has done for us in Christ, and it stirs our affections once again. And it takes us out of this, this realm of just being very cerebral about our, our walk with Christ, which it is a cerebral, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a propositional understanding of of history and what, what God has done in time and space and in history. However, uh, we are called to love Christ with fervent passion and affection and love others likewise and love our enemies with conviction and passion. And in the face of any kind of threat of persecution, those convictions are to run deep enough to where we can stand in the same way that these faithful men did in past times and women that we don't have as much record of. Uh, because of their fervency of devotion to Christ, it was it was not even a question. You can you can you get the sense from reading this this account of Polycarp's martyrdom. It's like he he, he even says it. I, I've served him for eighty six years. He's never failed me. He's never failed me. Why would I recant? Why why would I fail him now? Why would I deny him now? There's just it's like not even a question. And that's that that conviction that clarity about the actual truth of the gospel and the fact that he knew that he had been redeemed and saved and that he had been given new life in Christ and it stirred his heart and his mind and his emotions and his will and all of it. It was a comprehensive effect. We need to be reminded of that. Well, let's pray together and we'll be dismissed.